every one of these rural regions has faced that kind of crisis to figure out why should we exist and how can we create a, a, a new economy that builds on what's there. Appalachia Meets World, a podcast about place and perspective, but always Appalachian. Hi, welcome to Appalachia Meets World with Will and Neil. We are back again. How's it going there, Neil? Yeah, pretty good. Pretty good. Uh, good day so far. How about you, man? I've been good. Seems like it's been a while, even though yeah, it's only been a week. Just a minute. Need to move back in the mountains. <laughs> I can throw a rock at you. <laughs> Maybe uh, we can just jump right into it tonight. Uh, where are you from? Yeah, you know where I hold it down. Laurel County, London. How about you? Well, you know where I am, but you have any news for me? Any local news? Kind of slow in the local local world. Uh, a couple things going on here and there. No, no big developments like I usually try to bring to you. But anything well, in your neck of the woods? Yeah. Well, well, one thing I did want to point out: we got corrected by our listeners, so we we definitely appreciate any feedback we get. And this particular listener wanted to let us know, uh, you know, how we referenced the chicken festival a couple of weeks ago. Uh-huh. Colonel Sanders is actually not from Laurel County or Kentucky. He was born in Indiana, apparently, uh, and moved to Laurel County. So we, we want to make that clarification just to let everyone know the truth. I still need to look it up. <laughs> <laughs> I, this is this is from a valid source so i i uh our mother i think they're probably <laughs> right <laughs> uh, but but i did i did have something i want to talk about tonight uh, i i think it was the last episode i was talking about some data and how you know data, the geek out moment yeah the geek out you moment. about to geek out again i might here in a minute but i wanted to say that it kind of made it sound like I was I was saying that data wasn't all that important, which data is extremely important. I, I didn't want to make it seem like I didn't I didn't think it was. I, I, I think maybe, I probably made it sound that way. Yeah, maybe, but but I I I, I feel like I, I mean I know that data is extremely important, especially when you're making policy decisions. So I I didn't want to to make it seem like I I didn't think those numbers were important they are especially the right data and reading it the right way and making your decisions based on the right and accurate data but i was I, you know i was pointing out on the episode that just day to day a lot of people don't feel the numbers it's just hard to feel it on a day-to-day basis yes policy decisions are driven around it but it's just hard to feel it i just wanted to point that out but my next geek out moment, uh, I wanted to talk about a report that I saw um, recently on workforce. And, and this report was in Appalachia, Ohio, Pennsylvania, and Kentucky. And so this report looked at non-metro and metro areas, uh, counties in the beginning. They looked at the, the employment growth in those areas. And basically what it said was that the non-metro areas growth in Appalachia 
and in the nation were similar, but they were way behind the metropolitan areas, which is not that big of a surprise. But when they got down to more granular levels, uh, community zones, they found out that, that, that Kentucky had losses in some areas, Eastern Kentucky especially, and that, but parts of Kentucky had growth in employment and parts of Ohio had growth. Parts of Pennsylvania had losses. And essentially what the report said that the losses were based on the specialization of natural resources and mining and that the gains were around manufacturing. So basically is what is pointed out that if you, if you have just a key employment area, whether it be in mining, whether it be in manufacturing, if you focus on that one and don't diversify your economy, then whenever that one industry struggles, then your community is going to struggle along with it. So that's just kind of one of the points that I wanted to point out with this report. It's kind of interesting just to see how these areas were were so dependent on whether it be manufacturing or gas production or mining when when those industries were were good like manufacturing is in is in Ohio and Kentucky right now especially in rural areas then the communities are doing do well and, and the employment does well but when those industries are not doing well like currently mining or gas production that those communities struggle also that can be felt in East Kentucky we we talked about that a couple of weeks ago too in our opportunity episode of <clears throat> folks migrating away from those things. The other thing we talked about was how important it was to diversify the economy. And one of those things that you can do to help with that is introduce entrepreneurship or, or kind of an entrepreneurial culture. That's something we're going to talk about tonight with, with one of our guests, uh, Don Mackey. He, especially in rural areas, believes that entrepreneurship is important. Yeah, I think... Uh... You and I have always kind of felt that way. Our our grandfather being an entrepreneur and, you know, conquering the world for 50 plus years. I mean, we thought he was the king, uh, but he did it in a, in a small community for a long time. So entrepreneurship has always been important to you and I for sure. And I say I'm a recovering entrepreneur, but still, still would consider myself that as well. So yeah, yeah it's definitely, definitely important, especially in small communities. Definitely. And, and, and we've seen it growing up, you know, people, a lot of times entrepreneurship in a small community is based on necessity because there are uh, aren't other opportunities. So they need to point to entrepreneurship. And I think Don will kind of touch on that of, of the import, not only the importance of that, but why it should be important and how it should be built. You know, a lot of times in small communities, it's not uncommon for people to have one, two, three jobs. If, yeah. if they are entrepreneurial, it's just kind of a way of life. Yeah, we call them hustlers down here. <laughs> <laughs> you gotta, gotta love the hustle. I'm looking forward to talking to Don, though, and picking his brain. Vast experience uh, that we can tap into and hopefully uh, share that resource with folks that may be listening. So I'm looking forward to it tonight. Yeah, definitely. Not only has he worked all across the nation, but he has recently done a project in central Appalachia. So I'm looking forward to asking him about that and seeing what his findings were. And we'll just go ahead and get into it. Sounds good. We want to welcome, we have Don Mackey on the show, on the episode. He has founded E2 Entrepreneurial Ecosystems, which originally was the Center for Rural Entrepreneurship 
where he practices ideas of place-based development. And also he works in a new initiative with Network Kansas to build sustainable economic entrepreneurial ecosystems across North America. He has over 40 years of community economic development and policy experience. And most recently, he was the co-founder and co-director of the National Center for Rural Entrepreneurship. So Don, I, I like to refer to you as the godfather of rural entrepreneurship. <laughs> I, I think that's a, a fitting title for you. Uh, we are definitely appreciative of you and honored for you to be on our episode. So welcome. Well, thank you, Will. Uh, this is great. I, I like your title better. Uh, Del Gines with the uh, uh, Kansas City Federal Reserve once referred to me as the Neanderthal of uh, <laughs> entrepreneurship. So <laughs> it, it has a little nicer. Uh, we had a good laugh when that kind of came out of Dell's uh, uh, shout out at a conference one time. <laughs> So our podcast is grounded on place and perspective. Like Appalachia is big on traditions. Neil and I, our family is big on tradition. And one tradition we have is appetizers at the holidays. We go all out. Our family goes all out on appetizers. I mean, a big spread. We eat more appetizers than anything. <laughs> Sounds so, fun. <laughs> <laughs> one question or what I wanted to ask you was, do you have a favorite appetizer or... Uh, holiday dish? Well, probably our favorite uh, holiday is um, Thanksgiving. And uh, because it, it doesn't quite have the pressure of the other holidays. <laughs> and it's a time where we do gather. And uh, uh, I don't know if it's an appetizer, but I am a sucker for pecan pie with a little bit of real whipped cream. <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah, you can always make that an appetizer. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I'm pretty sure we've had a few of those on our spread before. Yeah, yeah. So that's that's my weakness. <laughs> good, good choice. Good choice, Don. I, I will I will let you. Obviously, I read a brief bio, but I'll let you give a little bit of background and talk about the work that you do with E2 Entrepreneurial Ecosystems. You bet. You bet. Well. I'm not going to go into the deep history of my journey, but I grew up in the Central Great Plains uh, as a child in a community of about 500 people in the sand hills of Nebraska, which is cow-calf ranching country, and uh, always had a strong attachment to place and community. And so my identity is really rooted in community. And I'm not sure through my whole life, I knew what I wanted to do. I kind of knew what I didn't want to do. You know, I thought about law school and decided, no, I don't want to become a lawyer, nothing against lawyers. Uh, but I always kept coming back to rural community development um, as a passion and as something that I wanted to do. And as I progressed through my career and my work, it became increasingly clear that we were doing a, a really poor job of helping communities figure out how to grow diversified and sustainable economies that really create opportunities for the residents who live in those communities. And uh, the deeper I got, the more attracted I became to entrepreneurship. And that's really started us down that track with a lot of colleagues. I always say everything we learned, we learned from somebody out there in rural America. We simply collected it, organized it, tested it, and then threw it back out to be used by other folks. And so over the years, um, we simply developed a framework that when a community says, I, I want to get into entrepreneurship development or I want to go to the next level of entrepreneurship development. We've got a set of resources and experience that uh, 
can help them do that. And, and uh, I firmly believe it's the best way in rural America to grow you know, a community-centered uh, economy that serves a wider range of people across the landscape. I totally agree with that. I mentioned you're the godfather of rural entrepreneurship. <laughs> Can you just define rural and also define entrepreneurship for our listeners? Sometimes people think of entrepreneurship in different ways. It, it could be a yeah. small business. It could be someone starting a tech company, you know, and I think there's this all, all in between but also it doesn't look the same everywhere. So can you just define that or what you feel like the definition is? Yeah, let me, let me start with rural. And in some ways, rural is perceptional. Um, you know, chances are if you're the mayor of a community of 5,000, you may not see yourself as rural, but see yourself as a small city. But somebody in New York City is going to look at you and say, no, you're rural. We kind of operationally define it as a continuum from small metropolitan areas like, um, you know, Charleston, West Virginia, that is a metro area, but it's rooted in a large rural region to very isolated rural communities, probably like your hometown and my hometown. I think that becomes useful in understanding where communities are at on that continuum. Are they urban adjacent? Are they very isolated and small? Has a bearing on how their development occurs. With respect to entrepreneurship, again, this kind of is in the eye of the beholder. When you say that word, some people think about mom and pop businesses on Main Street or Bill Gates or Google or what have you. And again, we kind of use a continuum. Um, thinking of entrepreneurship as the creative act of, of visioning and growing uh, a, a venture. And, and this could be a for-profit business, a nonprofit organization, or even like a national park, the people who are trying to uh, take care of our public lands for us. And it really focuses on that process of not just running that business or that nonprofit, but stepping back and thinking about how do I make it better? How do I make it more successful? That's the creative process within entrepreneurship. So we see entrepreneurs as part of the creative class in the world um, because they take time to engage in thinking about how can we do certain things better? You know, that ultimately meet the wants and needs of some kind of consumer out there. Yeah, that, I think that's a very good definition of this continuum. It can be all, all of the above. Yeah, exactly. We talked about this before, but one of the reasons why Neil and I have this podcast is to not only talk about the great things going on in Appalachia, but also to venture outside of Appalachia and talk about some of the things that are happening in other areas. And that's why we really wanted to have you on this episode. I mentioned in your bio, you work with the initiative with Network Kansas. Right. And if anybody is in this type of business, they identify Network Kansas as kind of one of the best practices in regards mm -hmm. to entrepreneurship, especially within an entire state. So can you talk a little bit about Network Kansas and kind of what makes it a best practice yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, I've had the opportunity to, to work with Network Kansas off and on from its very beginning in 2004 
uh, we were involved with the Kansas legislature and the advocates to create Network Kansas. And over the years, I've done work for them, but I've also learned a lot from them. So we always talk about, you know, who taught who what. Um, I don't know. It, the, the cloth's too tightly woven to, to peel that out. But I think what makes Network Kansas worth looking at is, number one, it's probably the largest and longest running statewide entrepreneurial ecosystem building strategies in the United States. They've been at this now. They're going to be close to their 20-year anniversary uh, if a year's out. But they've also taken it to scale. Their footprint is throughout Kansas, uh, started with primarily a rural focus, but is now uh, urban. And they've been able to reach into the smallest communities in rural Kansas, which is not easy to do. So I think that's important. A couple of other things that I think make it worthwhile is one is they have, unlike a lot of ecosystem building operations, they build a very sustainable venture model that allows them to not only stay in the game, but to scale, to continue to grow. And that's huge because a lot of the folks who are working in this space kind of live and die on that fundraising treadmill. And that means a lot of time and energy is going into finding the money to do this versus doing the work. The other thing about Kansas that we've really come to believe is true is they're all about a very simple transaction. How do we help communities? And again, the emphasis on communities, even though they're statewide, most of the action occurs in individual communities in Kansas. Find entrepreneurs, talk to them, find out what they need and help them move their venture ideas forward. And so they do that primarily with capital. And so we just, we're doing a case study right now on their capital system. You know, in the last decade, they have leveraged over a half a billion dollars of capital throughout Kansas, primarily in the rural areas, which is a pretty amazing number uh, when you look at the population base of that geography. But they also help these communities connect entrepreneurs to technical assistance and program assistance, but they're at scale. When you look at the impacts, this has been transformative for rural Kansas in terms of growing more diverse, prosperous communities. I like how you kept coming to, back to that word scale, because I, I see in a lot of, lot of areas that are, are trying to do entrepreneurship, they'll do these one-off programs, these one-off mm -hmm. things that, that work, that nothing, nothing wrong with building an accelerator, but how do you scale it to, to uh, develop an entire community, an entire region around entrepreneurship? And I think Kansas is a perfect model that has done that well. You know, if anyone wants to check out Network Kansas, I'm sure they could reach out to Don or some others that, that have founded or worked for Network Kansas to just find that, kind of pick their brain and find out how they made it work there. One thing I did want to ask in, in that regard, you know, you've worked all throughout the country and, and also internationally, but even in Kansas, how does Kansas compare to Appalachia or, or other rural areas for that matter in regards to some of the challenges you've seen, but also some of the opportunities? Yeah, I, again, as we think about rural, particularly more remote rural, almost every part of rural North America has faced serious challenges because almost every one of these economies was primarily rooted in some kind of natural resource industry, timber, coal mining, energy production. In my part of the country, 
commodity agriculture, same within Kansas. And all of those industries have gone through profound change. And so, you know, you know what's going on with the coal mining, with both automation and the loss of coal mines in, in central Appalachia. Uh, but even in the Corn Belt with, with production agriculture really thriving, it's automated. I mean, a farmer now can, can operate five, 10,000 acres with the help of, of one or two people where you used to have a family farm on every quarter section. And as a result, the rationale for a lot of these rural communities that supported all those families when this country was settled has gone away. And so every one of these rural regions has faced that kind of crisis to figure out why should we exist and how can we create a, a, a new economy that builds on what's there. I mean, agriculture is never going to go away from my part of the country. Um, you know, chances are there's always going to be oil and gas production in West Texas and timber harvesting and processing in the Pacific Northwest but they're not sufficient to sustain vital communities uh, because they just don't employ as many people as they used to. And that's why I think entrepreneurship is really important because it, it creates a way for people to uh, reinvent a, a more diverse economy that can support the existence of these communities. And what's neat is we now have a growing collection of these communities in different kinds of, uh, you know, historic settings, whether timber or fisheries or energy or agriculture that have demonstrated they can do that. That's why I've really come to believe that this is a powerful way to move forward. So, you know, different drivers in different parts of the country, but it's all led to fundamental restructuring in the economies and uh, the rationale for these communities existing. And, uh, you know, a lot of them haven't figured out how to do that and they've been in decline. Some of them have completely disappeared. Yeah. And that's unfortunate. Um, yeah. I also know in another reason we wanted to have you on the show that you you and a, a group of other individuals just completed, uh, I think it was a three-year project in, in Central Appalachia. Mm -hmm. And um, I, I wanted you to talk a little bit about that, kind of the work you, work you did there, but also other than my accent, I also reference Appalachia. I say it, I, I say it Appalachia. I, I, you can definitely tell people that are from Central yeah, Appalachia. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you know, I'm a Midwesterner, so yeah, I don't quite get it right. <laughs> yeah, well, we have done work in that part of the country for a very long time, deep relationships with like rural action in Southern Ohio, um, uh, the West Virginia hub, um, uh, the foundation for Appalachian, Ohio, and, or excuse me, Appalachian, Kentucky, and Berea College. And when the uh, Appalachian Regional Commission uh, received additional congressional funding to help kind of offset the loss of coal mining activity, and the power money came in, um, we reconnected with those three organizations. And my colleague, Deb Markley, was instrumental in putting this together to say, um, could we launch a project to help a cohort of communities in each of those three states, working with those three partner organizations, 
explore and use our E2, uh, uh, you know, Energizing Entrepreneurs Development Network as a way to grow stronger economies and more prosperous communities. Ultimately, uh, the Appalachian Regional Commission funded the project, and we began to work with those three organizations that in turn were working with uh, partner communities in each of those three parts of the region. And we learned a great deal. So one of the things for your listeners we can make available is access to the website that Deb Markley put together that has all of the stories. And I think it really speaks to the fact that, again, when communities will focus on their genuine assets, this can be a way forward to building stronger communities. And some of the stories are real simple of, you know, a small community in Ohio that lost its cafe and wanted to get it back and figured out how to do that by working with somebody who had moved into the community that was ready to reopen it. Uh, or stories that are much broader uh, in, you know, your part of Kentucky with all of the people coming into um, uh, uh, Appalachian, Kentucky to take advantage of, you know, the new national park, uh, the trails, the forests, and uh, uh, said, we don't have enough lodging. And so they really focused around how to build a network of Airbnbs. Um, and, uh, you know, within a year and a half went from a couple to over a hundred. And of course we know that when people stay overnight in a community, uh, they spend a lot more money. It creates a stronger tourism economy. And so it, there's just story after story from this work of how these communities um, used this approach uh, to figure out how to energize folks in their communities to look at development opportunities, figure out how to make them happen. And in doing so, they started strengthening their local ecosystem to support more of this work. So really rich learning, I think some real powerful outcomes. Uh, but it's one of those things I always say, this is a 24-7, 365 forever job. It never ends because the world never quits changing. And so these communities simply have to keep doing this uh, to reposition themselves and their residents for success. That's great. You know, you spoke about the findings in Central Appalachia and, and the takeaways, but can you just talk to maybe the one or two items that are most important, especially what you found in Central Appalachia, but most important in forming an entrepreneurial ecosystem? Are there a couple of things that come to mind that just are, are top of mind in regards to starting that process or building that culture around entrepreneurship? Yeah, I think in a lot of ways, I mean, great question, Will. I, I think in a lot of ways, we make this too hard. And uh, not to say that the work isn't hard because it is, but within our framework, what we really suggest to communities is they have to take the time to reach out and connect with their entrepreneurs. And that could be somebody who's got a side gig that they're doing part-time to, you know, that trusty store on Main Street or, you know, maybe businesses that employ more people. But you've got to reach out to those folks and you got to build relationship with them and find out what they're trying to do. What are they struggling with? Um, what are their aspirations? And then step back and say, how can we help you? You know, not everything, because you can't 
I mean, ultimately it's their journey, not yours, but as a community, and I'll use the example of the Airbnbs, they pulled together the existing Airbnbs, people who were thinking about doing Airbnbs and brought them together and just began to talk. What have you discovered? What are you struggling with? What do you want to do? And very quickly, they had a a strategic agenda of things that they could use to help. And so they reached out to uh, uh, Mayset and Kentucky Highlands Investment Corporation and Berea College, where there was expertise in this area, put together a curriculum um, and help people begin to think about what are the standards, what are the considerations to get into this. Before long, they put together a collective website. Uh, They found out how to do shared reservations. Um, What's the right pricing? You know, all of those kinds of things. And, but it was driven by listening to people and where they were at and what they needed to do to get over the finish line. But in doing so, they created a community around this Airbnb uh, group of people. And I think that's the process is let folks who are engaged in trying to create and grow ventures, tell you what they need, and then look at what you need in the ecosystem to support them. Another quick example, not to go on, but in our part of the country, a lot of our locally owned ventures, the owners are aging. And typically when they decide to pull the plug, no warning, you know, they put up a, a, a sign that they're going out on a business sale. Um, the building closes. Somebody comes in and buys it and uses it for storage and the community's that much worse off. Well, in, in this case, we've got communities that said, we want to create a pathway for 20 and 30-year-olds to come in and take over those businesses. And so they started talking to 20 and 30-year-olds that wanted to do that. What kind of help? Well, they needed mentors. Uh, They needed more than just gap financing. They needed equity financing. And so they put together investor groups because in most cases, these folks didn't have the credit ratings or the equity to get conventional bank financing sufficient to make this work. And again, they didn't know that going in, but once they started working with some of these uh, 20 and 30 year old couples and partners of college buddies or whatever, they quickly discovered what they needed to help make that happen. And lo and behold, if we look at those communities today, they've got a whole new generation of 20, 30 year olds that are thriving in businesses that have reinvigorated downtowns and the business community uh, within these places. And so I think that's, that's the biggest lesson is talk to your entrepreneurs, even if they don't identify themselves as entrepreneurs, if they're in this space, they are. And you got to take time to listen to them and then figure out, can you help them? Yeah, that is great. And, and what, I, what I heard uh, from that was that listening to the entrepreneurs is really important, uh, not just going and doing, but listening for their needs, reaching out, doing outreach, uh, educating when you need to, but also being very welcoming and open to the younger generation, race, color, creed, religion, whatever that may be, just yeah. being an open community. And one thing I also wanted to mention, you know, you talked about 
Kentucky Highlands, you talked about MACID. Um, there are a number of organizations, especially in Eastern Kentucky, that are doing great things. And, but the one thing that I find, and, and a lot of communities too, the one thing that I find that has kind of driven that in all those organizations and all those communities, like you said, it's not overcomplicated, but it ha- has a lot to do with leadership. A lot, yeah. All those organizations have really good leaders and people that are have stayed the course and have really dived into entrepreneurial activity and really led their organizations, their communities well. Is that something that you've seen uh, throughout your work that leadership is important? Oh, I couldn't agree more. I, I think it's the difference because the community's role is so important. And if you don't have a group of people in the community who are willing to kind of play that networking role, first of all, they've got the greatest potential to build relationships with their entrepreneurs. Hopefully we'll come back to the diversity issue because I think you raised a point there that's really important. And they also have the greatest potential to understand what are the resources out there. And so if you think about a Kentucky Highlands Investment Corporation that can bring a lot to bear, they don't have people in every one of these communities. But if the community understands what Kentucky Highlands can do and says, we now have an entrepreneur that could really benefit from their resources, whether that's capital or mentoring or technical assistance, they're in that unique position to make that connection. And and again, it's relationship-based. The community's got to know what the resources can do. They, they need to be able to get on the phone or send an email and actually talk to somebody they know and say, I got somebody who's ready for what you can do to help them. And at the same time, can also get on the phone or the email and, and talk to that entrepreneur and say, I, I've got somebody that I think can address one of your critical needs that you've identified. That's where I think community leadership becomes so important is to say, we're willing to take on that role. Uh, so it makes it efficient for the resource provider, but also efficient for the entrepreneur uh, because there's no way the entrepreneur can know about all these resources. And there's no way that these resources can know about all the entrepreneurs. And somebody's got to connect that. Leaders in the community are, are the folks that can do that. Yeah, that's great. Did you want to uh, touch on the diversity? Well, I I think you raised an important point. Um, We're right now finishing a 50-year-long case study of a rural community in my part of the country, or Nebraska. Um, And this is a relatively small community, 2,300. And it's really interesting. Um, It's one of these communities that has transformed itself to being a very vibrant, successful community having gone through some very challenging times. And uh, we're tracking about 100 local businesses uh, as part of this case study. And what's really interesting is if you were to look 10 years ago, the people who would get support from the banks and the community would be primarily uh, young males that are members of the predominant families because they could get bank loans, they could get support. But what this community said is we're going to cast a bigger, a bigger net. So they began to look at uh, young people returning who maybe had student debt, couldn't get a bank loan, but how can we help you? Or maybe people who grew up in families that didn't quite have the strongest reputation. And, and in small towns, you suffer you know, the pains of being uh, of your family members. Uh, that's pretty universal in, in rural America you know, opening the door to say, 
half of these businesses are female owned and operated now. Uh, you know, 10 years ago in, in this community, you would have had to get a brother, a father, an uncle to co-sign to get a loan. I mean, these are just the hard realities, but by opening up to the diversity of talent, people who are motivated to do something with their life by engaging in a business or a nonprofit just creates a lot more potential. And I think that's part of the key is for communities to step back and say, are we willing to find ways to help people succeed, even if they're not perfect? Or in the past, we might not have supported them. And, and in many cases, this is kind of subtle bias. They're not intentionally trying to prevent helping those folks. They just got used to the fact that it's so much easier to make a loan when you know the family's got deep pockets. Um, and if something goes bad, they're going to step up. Then somebody who says, I don't have a family with a lot of wealth that's going to backstop me. And I just think that's a huge element for communities to step back and think about. Because if you can help a, a couple in their late 20s who have student debt, but are passionate about taking over a local business where they've worked, that's a huge opportunity because passion and hard work trumps almost anything else in entrepreneurship. And that's why we see immigrants and other folks who have oftentimes faced disadvantages prove to be some of our best entrepreneurs because they are driven to improve their lives if we'll give them half a chance and kind of wire around the challenges that they face. Yeah, I think that's a awesome and very good point. I, I uh, I think especially in small rural communities where we don't see a lot of diversity, it's a capacity thing, you know, we just don't have the numbers to see a lot of diversity in, in diversity that we tend to think about it. But I think yeah. often today we're separated by class, which is yeah. another form of diversity. Um, I agree. I think pointing that out that we should keep in mind everyone and be very open and welcoming to everyone is a, is a really good point. And I also want to give a shout out to your podcast, Pathways to Prosperity. Um, it's a really, really cool informational, especially if you're into this work, really cool informational podcast that you can learn about Ord, Nebraska, for instance, that you spoke about. You can learn about a, a lot of these things that where you've done work. So I just want to give a shout out there. I have one more quick, well, I have, I have two more. So I have a final question and then I have a final, final question for you. All right. Fair enough. <laughs> but one last question, uh, you know, you've talked about a lot already, but just to get back to kind of those people that are thinking about starting an entrepreneurial venture. Neil and I are from, it's cold country. Uh, right. A lot of our economy has always been dependent on the coal industry whether it be directly or indirectly, there are a lot of indirect jobs associated with the coal industry where we're from. And it's been like that for a long time. And a part of our culture, a part of our heritage is formed around that. We are very proud. I, I know there are a lot, I know a lot of coal miners and they are very proud of, of the work that they've done, yep. the work that they're doing, the work that they did. And it's almost a mindset that, that we have. We're very proud and it's a, it's a culture where we're from. And that's, that's the same in the timber industry, I imagine. That's the same in natural grass. Mm -hmm. People are very, very proud of their work and they've always been dependent on that job that it's usually always been there. When we're talking about entrepreneurship, when we're talking about entrepreneurial-led development, how do you change that mindset 
especially when the industry is in decline, how do you change someone's mindset who is so proud of their heritage as well they should be? I feel like everyone where I'm from is very much a proponent, not necessarily a proponent of the industry, but very much a proponent of coal miners, of the people that work the jobs. People can be for or against coal, but almost everyone is for the coal miner. So how they've been embedded in this industry, how do you change someone's mindset of, I'm not just going to work a job. Now I got to think entrepreneurially and think about developing this opportunity or, or doing something in the entrepreneurial realm. I mean, there is this culture shift, there's this paradigm shift, but it's definitely a mindset that we have. And how do, how do we overcome? Well, I, I, I'm going to give you a personal answer and then kind of extract from that what it means as we build entrepreneurial culture in, in rural communities. Um, because the dynamic you just shared, Will, is, is common you know, multi-generational farmers in my part of the country going, that's what I want to be, but they can't do it now with a section of ground like their parents or grandparents did. I, I think at a personal level, uh, you know, I was fortunate enough to grow up in a family, an ex- very extended family, seven brothers that my dad was part of, uh, and they were all small business owners. And so, you know, not high powered entrepreneurship, but they all had to figure out how to make a go of it with their respective businesses. And I learned a lot from my father and mother in the businesses where um, I always had a job (laughs) and I was expected to work. (laughs) And as I think about my own life journey, you know, I've had some real, uh, you know, slam the door in my face and I've had to pivot. I think that speaks to one of the qualities. How do we become more resilient individuals? Knowing that no career track is guaranteed and the chances are in our dynamic world that um, don't set your expectation that this is going to be here forever. So, you know, when it's good and you love it, do it, but also be open to the idea that it, it, that opportunity could go away in a heartbeat. I mean, think about the millions of workers in furniture, textiles, apparel, coal, timber, that have lost their jobs. Um, I mean, it's staggering to think about the transformation in basically a 30-year period. And so I think that's the first thing is how do we become more resilient? And in turn, how do our communities uh, become capable to help people acquire the skills to become more resilient? And whether you become an entrepreneur in the classic sense or you just behave entrepreneurially, I think this is a way to navigate the dynamic change in the environment we live in. It's not comfortable. It's not easy when you think, man, I've got a great career track. It's looking wonderful. I like the money I'm making. And then all of a sudden it's gone and you've got to change uh, and pursue another path to be successful. I think communities, by supporting entrepreneurs who demonstrate that ability to be resilient, And I would put this in the top five of characteristics of successful entrepreneurs. They are resilient. They're able to change when they need to change to be successful. And we saw this in spades during the pandemic recession. Folks who could no longer put people at tables figured out how to do takeout and do other things to survive this totally unexpected crisis. Uh, That's a role that the community can do by supporting people and then demonstrating uh, to other folks that, okay, I know this person 
and I see what they're doing and I see how they do, did it, that makes it much easier for me to think about, well, if they could do it, then maybe I can do it. And I think that's where you begin to get culture change is where you have role models that are like you, no, no more special, no more talented and not much brighter um, who are figuring that out. And it sets an example that uh, because I've lost my lifelong work, doesn't mean I can't have a bright future if I'm willing to embrace change and pursue other opportunities. That's a very, very good answer. And I, I, uh, I think we as a region, when I say we, I mean Appalachia, we are a very resilient, you mentioned that word, we are a very resilient region. So I think entrepreneurship would uh, appear a natural fit for our region. I, uh, I wanted to get to my last, last question that I mentioned. And, and as you already mentioned, ob obviously from the way you say Appalachia, you are not from, <laughs> but I, w I wanted to ask you where, and we ask this of all our guests because of, of how we kind of ground ourselves on place, on perspective. We think it's very important, but just where do you call, and you've already kind of answered this, but where do you, at this point in your life, even where do you call home and why do you call it home? What makes it unique to you? Community has always been important to me. I'm actually writing a collection of stories right now on uh, tailored after the book, The Sons of the Middle Border. Um, and the Middle Border refers to that country between the industrial Midwest and the Rocky Mountains, uh, you know, the central Great Plains. And that's where I grew up. I mean, my childhood in a community of 400, very isolated. I was 10 years old before I saw my first TV or a street light. went to high school in a little larger community. And so I really identify as my home, the central Great Plains or this middle border region. It's where my family, you know, some of them homesteaded in this part of the country. We've got really deep Deep roots. And I've just seen the power of what nurturing, supporting uh, communities, but communities that also challenge us to be better, uh, the change it can make in our quality of life, our opportunities for making a better living, uh, pursuing our dreams. And so my home is here in this part of the country. Um, you know, I now live in a little small or larger community, Lincoln, Nebraska, with about 300,000 people. But it very much has this central Great Plains small town quality to it, despite its size. I, I see that in other parts of the country. I can't claim them as home. I don't understand them as deeply, but I see the same dynamics. Um, but I'm a rooted guy. Uh, this is home. Uh, I want it to succeed. That's been part of my motivation is I think it's tragic when any community declines and dies because it doesn't have to. Um, if people are willing to do the right things, work hard enough and same with individuals, you know, you don't want anyone to fail. And so how do you give everybody a fair shot at a better life? And, uh, anyway, that's been kind of my North star, my driving motivation. It may sound a little sappy, but, uh, no. you know, it is what it is. And, uh, uh, it drives me. Yeah, that's a perfect answer. It's always interesting to hear people's answer to that question because, you hear the similarities, no matter where they're from, of how they appreciate where they call home. It, it's a, a really good answer and, and a good ending to our discussion today. I, 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 Don, I appreciate you being a part of this. It was definitely, definitely inter informational, but 
I, I thank you. And as the godfather of rural entrepreneurship, <laughs> we are honored to have you on the show. Hey, no, it's mutual. And thank you for what you and your brother are doing. Uh, and if we can ever be helpful, uh, uh, we'll do the same. We'll get the word out on your podcasts uh, because I think we're all trying to do the same thing. We're trying to build stronger communities, greater opportunities for the people who live there. And, uh, you know, uh, we, we need allies and I'm glad we've, we got to meet. Yeah, same here. I appreciate it. Thanks so much. You bet. All right. I, I so appreciate Don being on the show tonight. He's just a just a wealth of knowledge, especially when it comes to rural entrepreneurship or entrepreneurship in, in general and, and building those entrepreneurial ecosystems. It was just good to, to pick his brain and, and download the, all the information that he has. And he obviously, you know, has done a lot of work throughout the nation, but especially in Appalachia and, and just listening to him and, and comparing, you know, Appalachia to other areas, it just kind of gave a good reference of, of where we are and, and, you know, what, what we need to do and, and how we can diversify our economy. Yeah. What a vast resource for us to tap into. And I was glad that we were able to, to get him on here. Very interesting stuff. So hopefully we'll have some uh, entrepreneurs out there that can greatly benefit from, from this episode. Yeah, definitely. And, and I know he, he talked about where he could find his information and, and his resources and they're all free. So uh, anyone can check them out. But, you know, maybe maybe we'll have him on in the future just to see how things are going and see what else we could do. So, you know how we uh, usually try to to work in uh, towards the end of each episode and talk about during our of place segment. And you always seem to, to jump ahead of me and, and ask that question. But uh, I was going to try to flip it around on you tonight and, you know, just just present that to you and see if there was anything that you wanted to talk about tonight. Beat me, beat me to the punch tonight. Yeah, I, there was a, there is a little bit I, I wanted to talk about in regards to of place, especially in regards to this episode of how in small towns, one, entrepreneurship is so important. Or, or at least a need in a small town. But one of the things I wanted to talk about was one of my old T-ball coaches, Jack Ed Cornette, where we, you know, where we grew up in Pineville, small town where the downtown, we kind of had a, you know, main street like most small towns do. But a lot of times there were, biz- sometimes there were businesses, sometimes there weren't, you know, we saw shifts in, in entrepreneurship throughout our life and even now in the small town it is really picked up in, in Pommel lately but w- one of the people that I wanted to talk about specifically was was Jack Ed Cornette you know we talked about I talked about some data in the beginning about the mining community in Pineville and, and how it kind of went up and down in regards to how the industry was doing but Jack Cornette was my old baseball coach and he he was a uh, especially in London or where you live now, a lot of people, while we always talk about the coal mining industry, a lot of people, you know, aren't coal miners. You know what I mean? Especially not today. But when, when I was younger and playing T-ball, Jack Ed was my coach and he was a coal miner at the time. You know, he'd come to, he'd come to practice and he'd come to our games, just face black with soot from the coal mines. Him and his brother were our coaches. And he was just, 
the best person, the best coach that I could ever have had as a as a kid. And and I just appreciate his time. But at the at the time I, I didn't know what he did. I just know he would come to practice with a dirty, <laughs> dirty face. I didn't know what he did or how important it was to our region, but also saw later on in my life how the industry affected his employment. There were there were times when he was laid off from the coal mines and would have to find something else to do. I didn't realize it at the time, but I realize it now how important it is to have an economy in a small town that's diversified and not just dependent on one industry. And I just wanted to point out Jack Ed because not only was he a coal miner, which is very important to our hometown, but his mom owned was an entrepreneur herself, and she owned a flower shop in town. I don't I don't know if you remember that flower shop, Neil. Do you? No, I don't. I don't. She ran that business for as long as I could remember when I was little and all throughout. And I would go with one of my good friends, Jason Cornett. We would always go to his mamaw's flower shop. And and at the time, you know, I didn't even know what entrepreneurship was. But looking back, she was an incredible entrepreneur for such a small town that to have that business and to keep it going for so long. And she was an incredible flower shop owner. That's what she did. That's what she loved. And, And how important it was to our downtown there and how just dedicated she was to that shop and how it made a difference for not only her, not only her family, but also the community. And I just wanted to to say that in regards to of place that a lot of times we look up to in larger communities and small communities to people to professionals that have you know professional degrees. But I think we should hold up entrepreneurs. We should hold up people working in the coal mines. We should hold up people working in industry. Forget about what what the companies do. We should hold up the the people that are working in these companies, but we should also hold up entrepreneurs just as high as doctors or lawyers or anyone else in small communities because they are just as important, uh, if not more so, for small communities and small rural areas. The hours they put in are, are lots of times way more than than some of those uh, other professional degrees that you speak about. So. I think that's important to point out as well, the, the grind of entrepreneurship and just the community involvement that they uh, encounter or are more a, a part of than even some of those other folks. So, yeah, definitely hold those people up. And I'm glad you brought that up. I'm glad that was a name, name from the past that you mentioned. Hadn't thought about him in a long time. Yeah, unfortunately, he he, uh, he passed recently, but I Anytime I think of him, anytime I think of his family, it's just really good memories. He was such a uh, such a good human being, and and just uh, it made for me it made playing baseball so enjoyable. I thought I thought we were the Cincinnati Reds. I, I thought we were the I thought T ball was the greatest thing on earth when I played for him, and and, and it was all because of him. That's because you played till you were like twelve. <laughs> That's true too. But it was really, it was all because of him and how fun he made it, of how good he was at. Coaching coaching us and he was just a good person and, and good man and I just wanted to talk about him for a minute and, and say how important what he did was and mention his mom and how important it just kind of bleed into our episode tonight and how important she was to the community how important that whole family was it just holds a special place in my heart yeah hopefully all of our listeners have somebody that they can think about that really drastically affected them or they can look back on their childhood and think about somebody that played a an important role in their life that uh 
like he did in yours and and um hopefully that this will help them tap into some of their memories of their childhood and i know growing up in appalachia i know there's uh, lots of folks that uh, volunteer their time to help coach or do things like that that are working a full-time job or owning a business or whatever but they always find time to to reach out into the kids in the community and be a part of their life i think that's unique in appalachia and glad you brought it up yeah and for those small communities when you're thinking about you know there are s- several things to volunteer in in a community but when you're thinking about putting or together those volunteer boards you know you always put bankers on it you always put professional on it but don't forget don't forget to think about those entrepreneurs in your community don't forget yeah. to think about those people that are always there that you always see that something you may sometimes forget about they are just as important if not more so to a community and to a community's growth and to to a community's success oftentimes those are those that are the most helpful are the ones that are behind the scenes, always volunteering, always doing uh, their part uh, just to be a part of it and never complaining. So yeah, they definitely should have a voice and should definitely be part of decision-making in a community. Uh, obviously leadership is important, but those, those voices just listening to those community entrepreneurs is just as important. Yep. I think that's a great way to, to, to wrap this up, man. Hopefully people can, uh, focus on that at the end and you know thanks to don again and and uh, i think what a, a beautiful segue there by yourself to lead us into to talking about uh small town entrepreneurs and, and folks that affected you in, in your life so i appreciate that till next time peace i'm up in the mountains again i'm getting lighter the air's getting now I'm facing down with a grin I've been in the city too long Sidewalks and buildings and singing sad songs Now I'm back up where I belong In the mountains